A wise man once said, why do the wicked have it so good? Live to a ripe old age and get rich. They get to see their children succeed, get to watch and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are peaceful and free from fear. They never experience God's disciplining rod. Their bulls breed with great vigor and their calves calve without fail. They send out their children to play and watch and frolic like spring lambs. They make music with fiddles and flutes and have good times singing and dancing. They have long lives and die painlessly in their sleep. This is the voice of Job in a paraphrase of a passage from chapter 21 of his Old Testament book. Let's be honest, he says. Let's have no more of this pious make-believe that it goes well for good people and badly for, poor, for, uh, for bad people. It's not true. Look, look around the world. It's simply not true. By and large, people who could not care less about God live happier, longer lives with less suffering than do believers. Why? What kind of God runs a world like this? Asks Job. I'm sure in some ways we've all struggled with these questions. Job certainly did. This week we start our Lenten series, Hope for the Hurting. We'll be working our way through the book of Job, not always the most cheerful read, not always the most eagerly anticipated book of the Bible to go through. But Job does a great job of pulling back the curtain and dealing with real hurt and with true loss. And as much as we may not like to admit it, both of those things are a hard reality of life. And yet as we wrestle with hard realities, there is hope in the midst of the hurting As we work through this book of Job during this Lenten season, as we explore some of the pains that come with life here on this earth, I pray that we will also see how the whole book, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the joy is all fulfilled at the cross. The whole book of Job points to is fulfilled in Christ. Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Good Friday and Easter And so, with that thought fresh in our minds, let us begin our Lenten series by reading our text this morning. Job chapter 1, we'll be reading from verses 1 through verse 12. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? Have you, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Thus ends our reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that saves our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So God's having like a board meeting, a committee meeting with the angels, and Satan, the adversary, the opponent, the enemy, is there. He came along with them, we read in our text this morning. It reads as though God were like going down the line and getting reports from all of his different angels. And then it comes to Satan and God asks, so what have you been up to? From where have you come? What you got going on? Satan's like, ah, not so much. Just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, I'm going to and fro, moving from here and there across the earth, replies Satan. And what do you think of my man Job? God asks. Isn't he just the best He's just fantastic, this guy. He's moral. He's God-fearing. He's obedient. He runs from evil. Man, what a guy, this Job. To which Satan replies, of course he's all those things. Look at the protection you've given him. You won't let anything evil touch him. So of course he acts the way that you want him to act. You have done nothing but bless him. How could he feel any different? And to this God says, is that so? You think he's only moral, only God-fearing, obedient, and, and runs from evil because I have protected him and blessed him? So be it. You may move against my servant, Job. The protections will be taken down. The walls are coming down. Only do not move against him personally. You may not harm him personally. And so the heavenly wager was struck. The accuser making his case before God and God allowing the accuser to move against his servant. And man, do we struggle with that, right? How could God allow Satan to move against his servant? How could God claiming to be love and good allow pain and bad to happen to someone that he loves and someone who loves him back, who is striving to serve him and to do his will? What kind of response, like what kind of reward is that? On January 1st, 1966, a song hit number one in the Billboard Top 100, and these are the opening lyrics of that song. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Many of us recognize that these lyrics belong to the song The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. 
There's been a lot of speculation as to exactly what the song was talking about. And at one point, Garfunkel summed it up this way. He said that the song's meaning deals with the inability of people to communicate with each other. Not particularly internationally, but especially emotionally. So what you see around you are people unable to love each other. So this song that that so many people relate to, so many people have loved for so long that made it to the number one spot on the Billboard Top 100 back when lyrics meant something in a song is about people struggling to communicate emotionally. They aren't talking about language barriers, but emotional barriers. When people feel that they are not being heard or not being cared for emotionally, it's like that they are communicating It's like that those that they are communicating with are silent to them. And so how does this relationship or how does this relate to our relationship with God? When he isn't treating us, when he isn't letting things happen to us that are, or when he is letting things happen to us that are hard, that we don't understand, when we don't feel like he is commuting communicating to us emotionally in the way that we expect or like, how does that make us feel towards him? Does it make us feel like he doesn't care? Does it make us feel like our pain and suffering and hurt are unimportant to him? How do we respond when God is silent? Satan left that meeting that day, and he carried out all of the evil that the Lord allowed him to do. There is Job chilling at his house. You know, he's got his, his feet propped up. He's sinking a drip or he's, he's sipping a drink with a little umbrella in it on the, on the shade of his porch. And he sees, he sees a cloud of dust on the horizon. And it's one of his servants running to him as fast as he can. And the servant arrives and says, boss, man, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. The oxen, they were out in the field and, and the donkeys were with them. And out of the hills came the Sabaeans, a group of bandits, and they attacked your servants with the sword and they killed all of them. I alone survived. They stole all of your 500 oxen and your 500 donkeys. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And no sooner had this servant stopped speaking when another cloud of dust on the hori- was, was on the horizon and another servant came running and he said, Job, I, I don't know how it happened. But fire just like came down from heaven. Fire just just erupted from the heavens, came down and consumed all of your 7,000 sheep and all of the servants watching them. I alone survived. I am so sorry. And this servant had barely stopped talking when another servant came running up and said, Master, a raiding party of Chaldeans came and they stole all of your 3,000 camels and they killed all your servants watching them. Only I survived. I am so sorry. And then the final servant came running up, breathless and heartbroken, and said, Oh, Job, Master, I am so incredibly sorry. Your kids, they were all partying at your eldest son's house, and a great wind came, and it struck the four corners of the house, and the whole thing collapsed. Job, your seven sons and your three daughters, they're all dead. I alone survived. I am so sorry. Disaster strikes for Job. He's gone from being the richest man in the known world to complete and absolute poverty. All of his wealth is gone. Beyond that and greater than that, he has lost his children. 
Aside from his wife, all that is valuable to him here on this earth has been taken from him in one day. And yet in response, he does not curse God. In fact, his response to this catastrophe, the Bible tells us, that Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. He didn't blame God. And so there's another board meeting with the angels and and in walks Satan. And when it comes time for his report, God asks him, so what have you been up to? And Satan replies again, oh, not so much. Just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going to and fro, moving here and there across the earth. And God responds, so how about my guy Job? He is still a moral and upright man, even though you incited me to take down my protection against him and to destroy him without reason or cause. And Satan says, it's only because you wouldn't let me harm him personally. A man can put up with a lot, but when you harm him personally, then he will curse you to, his, to your face. And the Lord said to the accuser, Job is in your hands, only you may not take his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with incredibly painful and disgusting sores that afflicted him from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. At this point, his wife turns to him, encouraging him to curse God and die. Shortly afterwards, three of his friends journeyed to see him and they came to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him, they wept and tore their robes for the change that had befallen their friend. And then the four of them sat in silence for seven days and seven nights, for they had nothing to say in response to the deep suffering of their friend. The book of Job is a scary book, not like a horror movie, but because of the, un- of the real understanding that this terrible story may, in some way, become our story too. For just as Satan demanded to sift Job, so he also demanded to sift the apostles, as we read earlier in Luke 22, 31 to 32. Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you disciples, that he might sift you like wheat. Just as Satan demanded to have Job to sift and test him to see if he was, as it were, chaff or wheat, so he demanded to sift the apostles. And just as God the Father sent Satan off to do that to Job, so he does with the apostles. Jesus does not tell Peter, but hey man, it's okay, because God has forbidden Satan from doing this. That's not what he says. Rather, he says, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Later, Peter writes about an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he can only be resisted by faith. Peter writes that the Christians will undergo trials, that the genuineness of their faith may be tested. Paul writes about the need to put on the full armor of God to protect us from the attacks of the evil one. So we are naive and mistaken if we suppose that Satan no longer wants to attack believers or that God the Father changed his mind about giving Satan permission to launch such attacks. 
And again, we are faced with the questions, why? Why did God let this happen to Job? Why does God let hardship happen to us? Now, we are given many answers in Scripture. Hebrews 12 talks about seeing hardship as training, that God molds us and refines us in hard times, drawing us closer in our relationship to Him. A few weeks ago, we talked about how the hard times in life, the storms that we go through in our life, are a tool that God will use to soften our hearts for a hard conversation. And that from out of these storms, God speaks. And so then we ask, then why isn't he saying anything? Why does it feel like he's silent? And to that I ask, is he? Is he really? Is he truly? Is God silent in our suffering? I know that in the moment it can feel that way. I know that it, it seems that way. But is he, is he truly silent? Does he really have nothing to say? And has he really said nothing? In this passage about Jesus and Luke, we don't see God being silent. Jesus doesn't say that God the Father will put up barriers and keep Satan from affecting our lives. No. He knows that it is going to happen, that our lives will be affected and that we will be sifted like wheat. But instead of being silent, instead of being a passive observer, instead of doing nothing and letting come what may, Jesus prays for Peter. He prays for his people. The Bible tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. That they, that we, might be strong in our faith. That we might stay the course. That we might stay strong in the faith. And so we don't see God silent. Instead, we see Jesus, God the Son, praying for us on our behalf. Praying to the Father that our faith may be strengthened. How crazy, how fantastic is that? And what do we see in the story of Job? We see that though God does these horrible things to Job, they are not done because of his frustration or anger with Job. God does them because of the accusation of Satan, not because of his feelings for Job. In fact, the text is clear about God's feelings towards Job, isn't it? He's absolutely in love with the guy. He thinks Job's fantastic. Look at my servant. Look at how awesome he is. I am just so fond and so proud of him, says God in the beginning of the story. And then what does he say after he has allowed calamity to strike? Does he say, ah, he deserved that. He got what was coming to him. No. He says, look at my servant. Look at how awesome he is. Look at how fantastic he is. I am so fond and so proud of him. God's feelings towards Job are unchanged. He still loves his servant, even though he allowed disaster to strike. And God's feelings towards us are unchanged. Even though disaster will strike your life, that does not mean that God loves you any less. God's love for you is unaffected by the circumstances of your life. I know that can be hard to wrap our minds around at times, especially times of, of great personal sorrow and suffering, but it's incredibly and wonderfully true. Your life circumstances are not an indicator of God's love towards you. 
Your life circumstances are not an indicator of God's love towards you. I understand that that may feel counterintuitive. I know that may not seem to make sense, but that doesn't make it any less true. Your life circumstances, the things, good and bad, going on in your life are not an indicator of God's love towards you. His love does not change. It does not shift. His love does not grow and shrink. God's love for you will never end or diminish. We read in Romans 8, 37 to 39, where it talks about there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It is impossible for God to love us less than he does right now. There's nothing that can keep us from God's love. This is simply true, whether we find it logical or not. Now, Job is, admittedly, a book of extremes. When we are sifted like Job is sifted, we will never lose as much as Job lost. We will never be as rich and have as much stature as Job did. It's impossible for us to fall as far as he did. And this is particularly because we can never be as good as Job was either. Look how great this guy was. Everybody loved him. He was a solid, moral, generous, fantastic guy. And maybe we look at God's feelings towards Job and in our human logic say, well, of course God loved Job that much. Look at him. Dude was an incredibly moral guy. I know that every person is a sinner, but if someone could be called good, I mean, it would be Job. He was blameless. He did all the things he was supposed to do. He feared God and he turned away from evil. I mean, who is able to do that consistently? This guy even got up in the mornings after his kids had a party and he would offer burnt offerings on behalf of his children just in case, you know, just as, as, as a precaution, just in case one of them sinned or cursed God in their hearts. He got up early in the morning after every party and offered multiple burnt offerings on behalf of his children just in case they had sinned during that party. And he did it consistently. He didn't forget, you know, he didn't take a skip day. You could set your clocks by his good works. And when we look at Job in this light, we can maybe, again, in our human understanding, grasp why God would love Job so much. And it gets even more depressing when we then compare ourselves to Job. How can I compare with that, we ask? I'm constantly dogged by my sin. I'm not blameless. In fact, I'm more to blame than I want anyone to know. I fear God, but but not enough to keep me from sinning. I don't run from sin like I should. In truth, half the time, it feels like I'm running towards sin. No, if Satan were to stand before God, he could actually accuse me. He didn't have dirt on Job, but man, there would be plenty of dirt on me. Now again, I'm not saying that Job wasn't a sinner. He, he very much was. We are all conceived in sin, so don't get the picture that Job didn't have his areas of failings. But his areas of strength were so, just, they just weren't so public. They weren't so obvious. And so we tend not to notice those areas of sin. And when we look at that and we go, man, I can't be that guy. 
How can God ever love me like that? How can I ever be worthy, ever earn that type of love? And the truth is that you can't. You can't be worthy. You can't earn it. And God knows this. He knew this then and he knows it now. But just because we couldn't be worthy, just because we couldn't get all of our ducks in a row, just because we couldn't master the sin in our lives on the schedule that we want to master the sin in our lives, it doesn't mean that God loves you, God loves us any less. God's love for you is not affected by your sin. His love for you is completely unearned and unmerited. And out of response for this love for you, his love for us, God sent Jesus Christ, his son. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He dealt with the temptations and the struggles that we dealt with, deal with. But where we fall and fail, he did not. Jesus remained perfect, unscathed by sin. And then instead of just imparting wisdom, giving us instruction, he ended his journey on earth by taking our sin all of our failings and all of its shame to the cross at Calvary. And there he died for it. There he paid the price that we could not. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and reconciling us, the broken creation, with the perfect, wonderful, loving creator. For through faith in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection and our need of it, the Bible tells us that we are clothed with Christ that we have put on the robe of righteousness, that we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Not a righteousness that we have earned or deserved, but one that has been given to us in faith. Now again, Satan still roams the world. The lion is still loose, and he is still accusing us, and we need to remember to continually bring those accusations to the cross of Jesus. Because here's the thing. When through faith we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, God is no longer listening to the accusations made against us by Satan. So often it can feel like God is silent when we go through trials and struggles and hardship. And I get that. I understand that on a deep, personal level. But let me encourage you in this truth this morning. That there is a time when God is silent, but it's not when we are going through hardship. When we are in Christ, God is silent in his accusation of us. Though we still sin, though we still mess up, though we still fail in the ways that we shouldn't be failing, when we are in Christ, God does not accuse us. He is silent in his judgment, for his judgment has already carried out on Jesus on the cross. And all of our sin has been paid for, has been atoned for. There is nothing left to accuse. There is nothing left to judge. God has spoken through Jesus Christ on the cross. Though we may feel like God is silent in our suffering, he has spoken volumes, spoken the depths of his love for each of us through the cross. I don't know where you are at this morning. I don't know what pain you are going through, have gone through, or will be going through. But I pray that you will find hope, some hope for the hurting from our text this morning. Know that God loves you so much that despite your sin and your actions, he sent his son to die for you so that he could have a relationship with you. Not because of how great or worthy you are, but because of his great love for you. And know that because of this death, God is silent in his accusation, in his judgment 
of your sin, for that has already been bought and paid for by Jesus. And when you feel undone by the sounds of silence, know that heaven is not silent on your behalf. Jesus is praying for you. He is at the throne of God constantly praying for you, praying that your faith would not fail and that your walk would not falter. God is not silent on your behalf. What a wonderful, fantastic, loving, gracious, and generous God we serve. Amen.